0: Friends, we're coming to the close today of the life of David, the David series that's been from the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And boy, do I appreciate during communion today that Daniel tapped back on one of the significant times, in fact, perhaps the greatest promise that was given to David during his reign was about this never-ending kingdom. And to tie it tied in today, of course, to uh, our time of receiving communion in light of this king that we have who has a never-ending kingdom. I want to remind you of some of the ground that we've covered together, and David's life is like a gigantic arc. I've shown this to you a couple times. I want to refer again today. It's like a big arc, and it obviously rise, 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 rise to its pinnacle, and then falls off to the back side. It shows that David's life had a lot of success on the front end, but there's a pivotal moment in which he makes a mistake, and then his kingdom is in a little bit of disarray. He's chosen by a king, uh, as king by God, to begin the whole thing off. Remember, he slayed Goliath. Military victories. He spares Saul's life twice. He conquers Jerusalem and establishes that as his new capital and the spot where he makes his own palace. God says, you're not going to build uh, my temple here, but you can go ahead and build your palace here. That moment in which David commits adultery and murder is... Now going to be a pivotal moment. And although God forgives him, the consequences of that continue on. One son kills another, another, and in other words, Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom revolts and tries to overthrow David. There's more war, and then there's this fatal census that ends the reign of David. And that's what the story is about today. Our nation's first census was held in seventeen. 90 it took 217 people nine months to finish i've got on the board behind me one of the original handwritten notes of the census that was taken in 1790 and in the census during that nine-month period they discovered well what do you imagine was the population population of the united states at that time 1790 was 3.9 million people (laughs) compare that to today 333 million people and so about a hundredfold increase over that time the next census will be taken in our country in 2030 and it's taken every 10 years why would you take a census well you take a census because you want to find out facts about your citizens for instance the total population or the percentage of men and women The people of different races or people of ages or economic background or educational background and the sum total of all that information is usually gathered with the hope that's used to better serve the citizens to decide what programs will be put in place or what things you'll do with the money that's gathered uh, for taxes in order to be able to spend that well on behalf of the people so why am i introducing this census today well because David had a very foolish and sinful mistake that he made with the only census that was ever done in his whole life. He never took a census except for this one, and he made a dreadful mistake in doing it. This is the second most famous census in the Bible. Anybody guess what the most famous census is? Let me say it. Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are taken because of the census in the Roman world back to their birth town, Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been born there. And so the census drives that one, and we know that story from Christmas. This is a little bit more secluded in the background of scripture, but boy, is it an important one, and I think it's significant that the Bible ends in this way. Well, today we are going to read about this final chapter of David's life. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and I'm starting in verse one. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commander of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began an arrow war. And from the city, from that city, is, which is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jezreel. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the uh, fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Jordan uh, of Judah at Bethlehem. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So really, the focus was on the census, but it really was upon the military. And that's the number that Joab gives back to David, is the number of people that are ready to fight. But David, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when God arose in the morning, excuse me, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great, but let not my hand let not me fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, seventy thousand men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, was working destruction among the people it's enough now stay your hand and the angel of the lord who was at the threshing floor of Aruna the jebusite then david spoke to the lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said behold i've sinned and i've done wickedly and these sheep what have they done please let your hand be against me and against my father's house lord this is a very interesting and somewhat difficult passage, and we're asking you today sort this out for us. We wish to understand what this meant to your people and what it means to us today. So guide us now, unstop our ears, make us fully attentive to what it is you wish to say. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. David found out that God becomes very angry with sin. And that's again what is the upshot of this passage. And in our own country, we can become angry when somebody commits a grievous sin and they seem to have no conscience about it. Let me give you an example. In the state of Washington, Gary Ridgeway is perhaps the most notable of all serial killers in Washington state history. He committed most of his crimes in Renton, And he committed them near the Green River. In fact, that's where he buried the bodies, was near the Green River. And so he was dubbed the Green River Killer. 49 women, all women victims, were killed by him and buried. And uh, he is now serving a prison sentence of many, many consecutive life sentences for this. And he's serving in a maximum security prison in Walla Walla, Washington. I don't know anybody who would not be revolted about this killer. And I don't know anybody who would not want that killer to be punished and placed in prison or even maybe face the death penalty because of his crimes and to keep him from committing any of those again in our society. In a similar way, God is angry over the sin over all his people. And that's what the passage is about today. God's anger over sin. And yet the passage is also about God's willingness to offer mercy. And so let's explore this final chapter of the book of, of 2 Samuel. And let's find out a little bit more about God's posture towards David's sin and God's posture towards our sin. First of all, and this is coming right out of the shoot, uh, sin angers God. That should not be any surprise to any of us. It's like saying one plus one is two. The problem, however, arises when we don't feel like what we've done matches what God thinks we've done. So it's like, have I really sinned here? Maybe that's a little bit of a stutter step. Or this might be the bigger one: we say we have sinned, but I'm a very rich one, all right? I mean, so I'm not that bad. And so again, we tend to minimize what we have done. And in the passage today, God is boiling mad about sin that Israel has committed. And by the way, he's mad before David even takes the census. So Israel is doing something, and we're not sure in the passage. We're never told in this passage or any other part of the Bible what Israel was doing that angered God, but they were committing some sort of grievous sin. We also find out in this passage, and this comes to the most difficult part of the passage, and really I think the most difficult sentence in First and 2 Samuel together is that God incited David towards the census. In fact, let me go ahead and put on the board here this passage, verse one. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, "Go number Israel and Judah." So God is seemingly involved in the process here of David going to set this this census in motion. And today is going to be one of those days where we're struggling to understand exactly what that means. And we're going to use a very valuable biblical principle. When we don't understand something, the very first thing we do is we say, wow, that's a problem. I see that's got kind of an issue there. So let's let scripture interpret scripture. Let's go to other passages that might inform us about how to interpret or understand this passage. So I want to take you by the hand and take you to three spots in scripture that will help us understand this. The very first one, James chapter 1. Uh, James chapter 1 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So, the scriptures in James is telling us, what's going on on the inside of you is we all have these desires, we all are enticed by our own lusts, our own passions, and that's what's dragging us away in order to go and commit sin against God. He's not prompting us to do that, he's not promoting us to do that, he may take his hands off and let us have an arena to do that, but he's not the one that's in the cause of that. The other one I want you to see is the issue with Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 8. Because we're told many times about Pharaoh that either Pharaoh hardened his heart, so that's repeated again and again and again in Exodus, or Exodus nine twelve, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that's repeated again and again and again. So which is it? Is it Pharaoh hardening his own heart or is it God hardening Pharaoh's heart? And the answer, that's yes. I mean, that's the way we answer that. Is it there in the scriptures I and mean, we kind of have to deal with that, that God's involved in somehow giving Pharaoh over to what Pharaoh wants to do and Pharaoh's participating again with uh, with God and saying, I'm gonna be against you and God's allowing that somehow. This is the other passage I want you to see. It's in 1 Chronicles 21 and this is the companion passage to the the one we're reading right now in other words it tells the same story and so we get a chance to go compare it to the one we have and it has one significant change in the way that it tells the story and this is what it says satan rose up against israel and cited david to take a census of israel oh my we have another person involved now we don't just have god and david involved But we've got Satan involved now and he's the one that's behind the scenes and is orchestrating David's move to take this census. Well, I needed to really study this a little more carefully this week, for your sake and for my own, and so I read a lot on this. And there is one quote from an Old Testament scholar, Walt Kaiser, that I really liked above everything else. Let me read that to you. He says, God may and does occasionally impel sinners to reveal the wickedness of their hearts and deeds. God merely presents the opportunity and occasion for letting the evil desire of the heart manifest themselves outwardly. In this manner, sinners may see more quickly the evil which lies dormant in their hearts and motivates them to act counter to God's will. And so again, what he's saying here is, yeah, there are times in which God is allowing you or me in order to go and take an action which we wanna take in order for us to understand just how deceptive and evil our hearts really are. And somehow God is involved with David right now, and involved with the nation of Israel, in order to to bring them up short for the sin that is already existing in their hearts. So the stage is set. David's going to move forward with the census. And I want you to understand the census in itself is not the problem. Why do I know that? because there are two censuses that are taken previously in the nation of Israel, both of them included uh, included in the Book of Numbers, and one of those censuses was over the military. In fact, God even said, go take a census. So the census taking by itself is not the issue. So what is the issue? What is the problem here? What's David's sin if it's not merely taking the, uh, the census itself? The problem is David's motivation with taking the census. Without fully knowing it or being aware of it, David had allowed his heart to slip into some sort of pride or some sort of self admiration for all the ways that he'd been successful. His military successes, the establishment of his now capital in Jerusalem, his own palace, the economic expansion of his own people. And he somehow maybe goes into some self congratulatory state Most likely Satan appealed to his pride and he says, David, just look how successful you are. In fact, look how big your army even is. In fact, wouldn't it feel good if you went and found out exactly how big that army was? That would probably be the cherry on top of your whole kingdom. Why don't you go do that? And so David is compelled or impelled to go and and take the census and he does that for his own sake or for his own Uh, you know, making himself look bigger. David marches out with the census, and in fact, Joab is even the one that says, are you sure you wanna do this? I don't think this is a good idea. I I, I don't think God's gonna like this. And David says, you know, hey, know your position. Just go out and get this done. So Joab salutes and says, yes, sir. And he goes in a counterclockwise rotation around the entire nation, all the way from Dan to Beersheba, stem to stern, and he takes the census and delivers back to David the number It takes him nine months and 20 days to complete it. But God is unhappy with the people. He no longer uh, trusts that they are trusting in him. And he is not persuaded that they uh, have loyalty to him that's in their utmost conscience. They, They found some other God that's not even a God. And so again, he is ready to pour out his anger upon them as a result of that. You know, that's a seemingly an old fashioned doctrine, the anger of God, the wrath of God. We barely even want to talk about that anymore because well, we just don't always want to camp on this God of, of love. Miroslav Volf is a Christian theologian he's from Croatia. And he said he used to reject the concept of God's wrath. He thought that the idea of an angry God was barbaric, completely unworthy of a God of love. And then his country experienced a brutal war. People committed terrible atrocities against each other and against their neighbors. And these are the following reflections from Wolf's book, which is called Free of Charge. And he reveals his understanding about the wrath of God. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war of the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced in this war. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day by day. Some of them were brutalized beyond imagination. And I couldn't imagine how God could be angry about that. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I should actually rebel against a God that isn't wrathful because of the world's evil that is Being presented. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And so, Wolf is saying something very important to us. If you look around the world and you see again the atrocities that are able to be committed, you're coming to a very quick spot in which you're saying, God's got to be wrathful against that the same way we would be wrathful against ridgeway as the green river killer he would be wrathful against that and in fact it wouldn't be just of him at all if he wasn't so what happens next we find out that david proceeds with the the uh, census but david comes to the spot very quickly after he does the census and he he repents he repents and that's the second whole piece is, that he is repenting and this is welcomed by God, but it doesn't alleviate the consequences. David immediately is conscience-stricken. David realizes what he's done and immediately expresses his sorrow. And this is what he says in verse 10, I don't have verse 10 up there. Let me just read it to you. I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly, he says. And so God is welcoming David's confession. And David, many times over, writes about what it feels like to confess to the Lord. And Psalm 32 is one of those instances. And in fact, I have that on the board, Psalm 32 for you. Um, this is such an important passage and one that i bookmarked in my Bible. And so if you're out on your app or you're in your Bible right now, keep your finger in first or 2 Samuel, but I want you to go and move with me to Psalm 32. Because I've read this so many times and it feels so... Good to know how God was meeting us in the middle of our confession, which is where David was. Psalm 32, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's so true to our experience in sin. It feels heavy upon us like a summer day in which God's hand is heavy upon us. It feels heavy. And it feels like this gigantic release at the spot at which we say, I'm not gonna hide that anymore. I'm gonna acknowledge that to God. And this is not the first time in David's life he's ever done that. But it's one of the most significant times that he's done that. And God needs that. And he's ready to enjoy the fact that David recognizes this. And by the way, this was one of the things that makes David a man after God's own heart and the greatest king Israel ever knew. David knew how to sin, but David knew how to repent. And David comes forward in that moment and says, "I what I've done is foolish. God meets him in that, but God says, David, that's not gonna stop the consequences. In fact, I'm going to give you an excruciating decision. It's your decision what's gonna happen in the nation now. You're going to have to decide, am I going to visit on the land three years of famine? Am I gonna visit on the land 30 days, or excuse me, three months of you being chased around by your enemies, which David by this time knew quite well. He had lived that life many times over. I'm going to revisit that upon you again. Or is it three days of plague that's going to strike the nation? You decide, David. And David has this interesting response to God. He says, I can't decide. I'm just going to depend upon you i am going to depend upon your mercy. And so I'm giving the decision back to you, God. And uh, David says, you know, just don't let me fall into the hands of men because I know they're going to be much more ruthless than you are. And so, God, I'm going to trust you with whatever happens. David tells him, I'm in deep distress, so I can't decide. The plague begins, and it begins to spread across the land. And 70,000 people lose their lives in just... One day, you remember when we were in the midst of this, the start of the COVID, COVID epidemic. And you remember how like, overrun the hospitals where people were showing up and they couldn't breathe, and it was just body bags were building up so much that they were putting refrigeration trucks on the outside of hospitals because people were dying so rapidly. Imagine that speed, that happening at breakneck speed all in just a day. And this is what happens with David. And David's sin is what cost the people seventy thousand lives. Imagine if you faced that decision of what would happen and you faced the consequences of saying, my sin has now cost all these individuals so much in their lives. Well, let's move on to the story because it starts to get really interesting now. David has obviously repented before God, but the, the pestilence has hit the land. And the third part of God's posture towards our sin is that mercy is in God's nature, it's in His nature. The plague is tearing up the land, left and right, people are dying all over the place, and the angel of death arrives in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice something big that happens right here at this moment. This is verse uh, 16, I believe. So, what I have? Yeah, verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Now, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And so God relents. God could have gone on with the, the pestilence and the plague for three days, but he only does it one day. And why is that? Well, number one, it's because David had relented or David had confessed his sin. So I'm sure that was pleasing to God. But also, God's punishments are always for a reason. They're always for our ultimate restoration. And that's what the story of the Bible is all about, is that we depart from God, and he's calling us back. Sometimes he uses the carrot, sometimes he uses the stick, but he's always the one who's pursuing us in order that we might repent and be restored in him. And that is, you know, he's never going light on sin, but he's also the one that's there and is ready to to receive or extend mercy to us when mercy is needed by us. In pro baseball, there is uh, something that happens when somebody uh, hits a home run for the home team and they oftentimes will set off fireworks in the stadium. Not that one yet, let me tell a story. There's a man who uh, was at a game, he was the fireworks operator And uh, it was the game in 2015 between the Royals and the home team was the Cleveland Indians, now known, of course, as the Cleveland Guardians. And Alex Rios uh, from the Royals at that time was the home run hitter that came up and he cracks a home run. And again, he's on the visiting team. Well, there was a mistake made by the home run operator And he set the fireworks off for the visiting team's home run. You might imagine that did not go over very well with the fans. In fact, he was soundly booed by all of the people in the stadium. And that is his appearance as he is in the back of the outfield. And there's another picture of him going, "Ooh, you know, the goop right off the top of the head. So, you know, he's feeling terrible about this. And, of course, he's booed the whole game for his uh, faux pas. Surprisingly, the Cleveland Indians organization did not keep more shame upon him after this event. In fact, in a tweet the next day, they quoted the movie Dumb and Dumber with Jim Carrey, who said this, pardon me, Mr. Perfect, I guess I forgot you never make a mistake. Which <laughs> I thought was classy. Of the organization to not say, you know, we fired our guy. I mean, you know, that's what we probably could have God shows mercy for our sins. And yet, God upholds justice. How is this done? He upholds his justice by putting the penalty for the sin you and I should have had upon Christ. And so, he upholds both sides of his character of saying, I'm going to be a merciful God. But i'm going to be a just god and so both of those are being accomplished all the time with god and god is merciful as much as he is wrathful or uh, just the uh, god of justice needing to penalize the the spots where we have sinned. all right this comes to the end of the story and i want you to see where the angel of death stops because the angel of death stops in a very crucial spot and you can read the entire book of second Samuel and you could miss this. He stops at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And I need to remind everybody what a threshing floor is because we've lost sight of that. We don't have those in our days. Here is a threshing floor in the ancient world. You can see that it's a gigantic flat spot, and they'll bring all the wheat or the barley to this spot. And they've got these animals that are running, oxen in this case, they're running around with a sled that's crushing the wheat. And then they've got some people over here who are winnowing. So they're using the wind to separate the kernels of wheat from the chaff. And that's the ancient process of winnowing or the ancient process of, you know, building, making bread. And this is the beginning spots of making bread is you use this uh, threshing before to do that. And so the section of scripture says that he is stopped at Aruna, uh, the, the threshing floor of Aruna. The rest of the passage goes on from verse, verses 18 and following, and let me just summarize that for you. David is told by God, I want you to go to the threshing floor of Aruna, I want you to take a sacrifice for me. So David complies, and he goes to Aruna, and he says, I need the threshing floor. He says, hey, you're the king. Take it. It's all yours. I give you the land. I even give you the oxen. If that's what you want as king, David says, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't do that. I have to actually purchase this from you because I won't offer God a sacrifice that doesn't cost me something. Great reminder to all of us. (laughs) Are our sacrifices to God really costing us something? That tells us that we've actually made a sacrifice to him. David makes the sacrifices and the story ends right there. The story ends with David making the sacrifices at that location. And you're scratching your head. You're going, why does the book end on this note? What is going on here? What am I missing? In fact, I think it's a very strange way to end the whole book. Unless you know this one piece of information. Pull out your seat. Mm-hmm. Because the threshing floor of Aruna is the spot Where they would build the temple to god i have a picture here of what the temple might have looked like back in the day nestled there in that very same spot spread out in a much bigger flat space but that's where god is saying i'm building my temple solomon would be the one to do it david's son but it's at that very spot it's at the spot where god stopped the angel of death It's at the spot where David was obedient and went and made the sacrifice. It's the spot where, again, God is doing something for his people that is bigger and that they can't see. And beauty is coming out of ashes at that spot right there. And I'm saying to you that this is the nature of God is that when we have what we consider a disaster in our lives, a plague of 70,000 people that have died because of my sin, God is building something else there. He's bringing beauty out of ashes at that very moment. And that's something that none of us can do. None of us are big enough to do, but God is doing that all the time in our lives when we can't even see it. And we're thinking to ourselves, man, terrible things happen in my life. I've got the shame of divorce that's happened to me. Or I've got the shame of a family member that perhaps has had a scrape at the law. Or I feel the sting sting of an addiction in my family. Or something dreadful has happened to me. And we can feel like, God must be done with us. But God all the time is up to something good. And God's bringing beauty from ashes at that very moment when we can't see it. Denise and I went years ago to Yellowstone National Park. We took our kids there in the year 2000. And that was 12 years after the record fires of 1988. To give you an idea of how big the fires were, the fires covered uh, 800,000 acres of land. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's 36% of the entire park that was on fire in the year 1988. And everybody thought wow will this park ever be the same again we were there in the year 2000 and we noticed that there was you know already things that were very helpful only 12 years later and we're growing up in fact i have a picture here of a before and after this is just a year later between before and after of the fire that went had ravaged and what was occurring uh, there just a few years later i think that was two years later there by the time we were there 12 years later i mean there was a lot of the park that was all uh, rebuild and re- grow it back our kids took a to class from one of the park rangers, park rangers and she told us that there were certain kinds of trees in Yellowstone National Park conifer trees like pine trees that only release their seeds into the ground when they came to a certain temperature I did a little exploration of this this process is called serotony, and it's when Uh, the 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 seed in the uh, pine let me give you the next picture and you'll see this better when the seeds in the pine cone are released between 122 and 148 degrees there's a resin inside that pine cone that melts away at that spot and then the seed pops out onto the ground in fact it hesitates for just a little bit and then pops out and it hits the, the floor of the forest out, which has been cleared away, so it has room to grow, plenty of sun, and it's got nutrients from the ash that's in the ground that helps it. And so some trees, some conifer trees that are of this kind, this serotony kind, will not grow unless there's a fire. The fire is what releases the tree to actually be reproducing and actually fill the forest floor once again. I raise that with you because that's David's life. <laughs> David had the fire, but the fire released something that he couldn't see at that time that was growing and that was remarkable. And we all have times in which God is taking an Aruna sacrifice, Aruna place of land like that for us and saying, I know this looks bad, but I'm weaving something better for you. So the passage today comes to a close on this dark note. 70,000 people died. How do we celebrate that? But God is in this process of hope and God God is offering, again, this spot for us where we can have our lives changed by responding to him. And this is God's message for us today, that there's an Aruna threshing floor in our lives. David had no idea what his obedience was going to do at that moment, but that spot changes all of human history. And I wonder what God is doing in your life right now. God's rightly angry over sin, but in his character, he is full of mercy. Let me end this whole series in the life of David with, again, an invitation. Because perhaps there's been somebody that's been listening along, and they've been saying, you know, I'm tracking with you on the life of David. I'm tracking with you on this idea that David, again, was a perfect guy by any stretch. In fact, David's got much bigger sin than I, I have. In fact, I, I, I never committed murder. I never maybe committed adultery. I, you know, I don't have those things that were kind of going on in my life. But I know I did some things. And David's life is reminding me that he was a guy that was forgiven. He didn't stop all the consequences, but he's a guy that's forgiven. And he's, he's this guy that's special in God's heart because he's got this heart that's tender towards him. If that's you today, and you've been tracking along, and now the pieces are starting to kind of come together. It's like David's story, now the story of Christ, that my sins can be covered over or forgiven by Christ, and the penalty of what God should have put on me is put on Christ. Otherwise, I'd be burned up, the wrath of God would be upon me. I couldn't stand up against it. But there's a way of averting that, and that is through Christ. And Christ is the one who's come in order that we would be led into a new life, and a life that's a forgiven life. And the story of David is pointing all in that cross direction. If that's you today, maybe that's the first time that this has made sense, that God's grace is being given to you, that gift is being given to you, I want to lead you in prayer. And I'm going to lead us all in prayer who have been listening these last weeks to the life of David. Let's pray. Father, for those here, maybe a few, who said, you know what, this is now starting to make sense to me. Uh, It's not about me being good. David wasn't that. It's about me being responsive to you. It's about me saying, I know I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you have provided a way out through your mercy, through your grace, and through your punishment of Jesus on my behalf. I say yes to that. And I say yes to receiving Jesus and having him come in and cleanse my life and put me on the path that is your path. I want that. So Lord, I say yes to you today. For the rest of us, Lord, this story of David, boy, it's not, it's not one that's just for the faint of heart. There's all kinds of things that happen in David's life. And yet, you were there every step of the way. You were there to forgive. You were there to direct. You were there to guide. You were there to correct when needed. And that's exactly what you do with all of your people that you love. The scriptures are clear that if we're sons, then we're not beyond uh, being caught up short at times and being uh, even corrected. That's good. Because that's what it takes for us to remain steadfast after you. We love you. We thank you for the life of David and all the ways that his story speaks to ours. We come to you now humbly in the name of Jesus, our Savior. I've actually